you got a Bible, open to Ruth chapter 3. It's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you behind me as we read it together here momentarily. But if you're new with us or just joining us, uh, have been out maybe a few weeks, let me catch up to where we are in the story of the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth opens with this famine that breaks upon the land of Israel in the days of the judges. The days of the judges were days in which the people of Israel found God to be useful for some things, but useless for others. So they would run to God for a military deliverance, but they would run to the other gods of the other nations for success in just about everything else. And so God would raise up um, other nations to oppress them, and they would come in and conquer them, and they would experience at times disasters and discipline, the hand of God against them. And the book, the book of Ruth opens in one of those scenes in which there's a famine that had broke out across the land as a part of God's discipline. And you got Elimelech and Naomi who jump town and move to Moab, take their two sons with them. Uh, Elimelech, when they get to Moab, he dies. Her, his two sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. His two sons die, leaving Naomi, his wife, widowed in a foreign land, far from her family, along with her two foreign daughters-in-law. Eventually, God visits his people, blesses them, food comes back, Whole Foods is now, the shelves are stocked again back in Bethlehem, and so they begin to make their way, Naomi begins to make her way back to Bethlehem because God had provided. Orpah returns back to her family and her mother's house. Ruth clings to Naomi and returns with her to Bethlehem, and when the two women get back, Back to Bethlehem, Naomi is broken, she is shattered, she is bereft, and she is grieving. She said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me Naomi pleasant any longer, but call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord's hand has been against me, and he's dealt very bitterly with me. And so chapter, that's the end of chapter one. Good start, right, to the story. Um, much like life, sometimes things don't go the way that we would expect them to go. Chapter two opens with the barley harvest is now in full gear, and Ruth says, I'm going to go out and glean by God's providence. She finds the field of a man named Boaz, who is one of the kinsmen of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, and she begins to glean in his field, which means she was gathering up some of the extras that were left behind by the reapers or at the edges of the field. So she provides for Naomi in her act of kindness. She goes out to provide food for her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law is too old to work in the fields in those days. Boaz is gracious to her. He is gentle with her. He provides for her. He protects her. He blesses her. He feeds her and sends her home with a super abundant supply of food. And whenever Naomi or Ruth gets home, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, where did all this come from? Even the doggy bag, right, of the leftovers. And she says, well, this guy named Boaz. And Naomi's eyes light up and she says, he is one of our redeemers. Stay in his field, my daughter. Do not go anywhere else. Continue with his young women until the harvest is over, lest you be accosted, abused, and harmed somewhere else. And that brings us to chapter three. Now, in Ruth chapter 3, but this won't be on the screen, but I want to read the end of Ruth chapter 2 before we read Ruth chapter 3 together so you get a context for where this conversation is coming out of. At the end of Ruth chapter 2, listen to what, where, where, where the context, listen to the setting. So, verse 23 of Ruth 2, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So the harvest time has now come to an end. And Naomi probably begins to fret just a little bit. 
Where are they going to get food? How are they going to have long-term stability? How are they going to have long-term provision? And so Ruth chapter 3 opens with these words. Let's read together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not, he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. Now, how many of you cringe just a little bit whenever we read Ruth chapter 3? I mean, just a little bit. If you're a parent in the room, you probably cringe just a little bit when we read Ruth chapter 3, right? I cringe just a little bit every time I read, every time I read Ruth chapter 3, right? There's some weird stuff going on in Ruth chapter 3, okay? Right? I don't think, I don't think anybody in the room who's a parent, particularly of a young lady, would say, hey, listen, if a young man is interested in you, you should go to his apartment, and whenever he falls asleep, break in, go lay, uncover his, his feet on his bed, lay down, and wait for him to wake wake up and tell you what to do, right? That's not how you express your interest or intentions toward a young man, right? That's not what we're, that's not what we're going for here. So it makes you cringe just a little bit, right? And, 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 and so let's be clear from the outset. Like there's, when you think about the Bible, okay, there are certain sections of scripture. There's, you, can, you can categorize the Bible in a variety of ways, but one way to categorize broad sections of scripture is that there's some scripture that is prescriptive and there is some scripture that is descriptive, And here's what I mean by that. There's some scripture that tells us what should happen and some passages of scripture that tells us what did happen. Okay, does that make sense? 
There are some passages of Scripture that say, hey, this is prohibited and this is commanded. And then there are some passages of Scripture that just say, here's how things unfolded and the story went. And so whenever you're reading through Scripture, particularly the narrative portions of the Bible, like the book of Ruth, oftentimes the narrative portions of Scripture are very descriptive in their orientation. They're telling us what happened. They're not necessarily saying you should model everything that you see and read in them, right? And so the Bible is written that way. Now, much of the Bible is written that way, is, is descriptive. It gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly. In fact, that's one of the things that I love about the Bible, and that speaks to its credibility, is because even some of the major players in redemptive history, it, it highlights and shows their flaws, right? You got Abraham, for instance. Abraham's going to go sojourn in Egypt because there's another famine in the land that God had promised. So he takes his family and moves down to Egypt. Now, when he gets there, he looks at his wife, Sarah, and says, you're really attractive and all the Egyptians are going to want to kill me to take you. So listen, we're just going to sell this thing like you're my sister so that no one brings harm to me, right? That, that's, 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 that's not how it's supposed to go, if you didn't know that, all right? So you got Abraham, you got David, who is a, a murderer and borderline rapist. You, you, you've got, in the New Testament, you've got Peter, who denies Jesus around the campfire three times before the sun rises, and you got the apostle Paul, who before he was Paul was Saul, who was seeking to be a fire-breathing dragon against the church and stamp out this movement called Christianity, Right? It doesn't, the Bible doesn't hide the, the, the flaws of even some of the major players in redemptive history. And so our, our task whenever we come to some of these descriptive passages is to go, what do we make of this? Because the author does have an intention that he wants to communicate, a theological truth that he wants to convey through this story. And as we read the story, we're to learn from the good and the bad and the ugly, and seek to determine what does it teach us about God, how does it teach us to live, and ultimately, because in this church we want to be gospel-centered, what does it teach us about Jesus, and how does it point us to him? And so that's the task at hand for us this morning. And so what do we make of this text in Ruth chapter 3 that makes us all a little bit squeamish in church whenever we read it? The first thing is this. The first thing is this, like, listen, one of the things this text teaches is that you plan for what you pray for, right? You plan for what you pray for. Listen, a couple of weeks ago, those of you who were here, those of you who are really type A and like really assertive and planners, and right, you got a a, a plan for a plan, right? A backup plan for every plan. You got three plans, three tiered A, B, and C under big Roman numerals, right? You got all these plans for your life. I told you that, listen, you're ultimately not in control of your life because nothing happens that happen. God is providentially directing human history, global affairs, and your life, your personal affairs, for his glory and for your good. You're ultimately not the one who is in control control. And that just kind of deflated some of you who are, plan- who are type A'ers, right? This morning you're going to love me though, because here's what I want to say, right? That God's providence does not prohibit your planning. Do you understand that? That God's providence, his directing of human history and your life, it does not prohibit you from planning. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the Lord, the purposes of the Lord will stand. God is ultimately in control, but God's providence doesn't prohibit you from dreaming, from planning, at times from, from strategizing on how to accomplish good, glorious, and godly ends in your life. 
Sometimes we are called to play, plan for what we pray for because at times God will turn your heart as you begin to pray for other people to be an answer to the very prayers that you're lifting to him. At times, you will be the person that God turns their heart toward the need that exists that you've been praying for. Look at the text. Listen, Ruth has been working for weeks in the field to provide for Naomi, and now at the end of the harvest, it's coming into view. And Ruth will no longer be heading out to the fields, Boaz's fields, every morning. And so that brings a couple of things into play here for these women. First, where, where would they get food from? Their food supply was now drying up. And second, it means Ruth would no longer have constant contact with Boaz, who was one of their redeemers. And it's like at this time, Naomi, she, she recognizes Ruth has loved her and served her so well. Her kindness towards her has, has been super abundant. And Naomi begins to realize, how have I loved and served Ruth? And I think she's at a loss. And that's why in chapter three, verse one, she says, should I not seek your rest? In other words, isn't it my, part of my responsibility to seek your rest? Listen, in those days, it was commonplace for parents to arrange marriages for their children. That's how it happened in traditional cultures. Some of you are like, praise Jesus, it doesn't happen that way in America, all right? Because the people my parents would pick for me are not the people I would pick for myself. But some of you just don't have maybe the wisdom to see that sometimes your parents see things that you don't. But that's a sermon for a whole other day. But listen, listen, it was was a parent's responsibility to arrange marriages for their kids. And now listen, Ruth has left her mother and father back in Moab. So who does she have looking out for her welfare in Bethlehem? And Naomi is now stepping into that role as a mother figure in her life, as her mother-in-law, to say, hey, let me help make some arrangements here for you. In essence, in essence, what Naomi is doing is she's beginning to plan for what she prayed for. She says, should I not seek your rest? Now you go back into chapter one, verse nine. Do you remember what Naomi prayed for for Orpah and Ruth when she says, may you find what? Rest in the house, each of you in the house of her husband. In other words, may you find a sense of security, a sense of provision, a sense of protection, a sense of normalcy, a hope and a future, family and kids in the house of your husband. That's what she's praying for in 1-9 and in 3-1. It's like the light goes off in her eyes and in her mind and she says, should I not seek what I've been praying for and have prayed for for you? And she begins to plan for what she had prayed for because God was turning her heart to be an answer to the very prayers that she had petitioned God for Ruth. It's one of the things this text teaches us. You see, sometimes when we intercede for something in someone else's life, God will turn your heart to be an answer to that prayer so that as you intercede, here's what he does. He begins to compel you to initiate. You're interceding and he begins to turn your heart to initiate towards that other person. 
So somebody comes to you and says, hey, listen, I I just lost my job. Can you pray for me as I seek another position, as I seek another opportunity, as I look for a place of provision? I don't have any income any longer. Can you pray for me? You say, absolutely, I will pray for you. I will intercede for you. Maybe you pray right there for them. God, would you provide a place of employment, a gainful employment to meet all of their needs out of your super abundant riches? And maybe day after day, maybe they are on your radar for a week or two weeks as they interview and as they go places and then all of a sudden God begins to prick your heart with a realization that maybe you're connected to somebody that is connected to somebody that can connect them to somebody as they pursue this opportunity that they're looking for and so you you don't go you know what maybe that was the burrito I ate last night (laughs) feel a little unsettled right now you say, no, maybe that's the Spirit's prompting to make a phone call and help initiate and put a plan together to, be, to plan for what I'm praying for, for that other person. Or when somebody needs financial support and you're praying, God, would you show yourself faithful to provide? And then you get a bonus at work. And then you can begin to, do, you even, do we even think this way to plan for what we're praying for by distributing some of that toward their need? When somebody, maybe you have a family member or a friend, you think, God, God, would you send somebody in their life who would begin to plant seeds and water gospel seeds in their life? Or somebody that is an immature believer that needs discipleship, needs somebody to invest in them, and you're praying, God, would you, would you show up? Would you send someone? And all of a sudden, God begins to turn your heart to plan for what you've been praying for, that you maybe are God's answer to bringing the gospel to this person, planting and watering seeds, or walking them along in the faith and discipling them. Or God, in our church, we need, we, I see this gaping need or this hole. We need this ministry. God, I'm praying that you would raise somebody up to do it. Do you ever think that maybe God wants to raise you up to do it and that God wants you to begin to plan for what you prayed for? See, that's one of the things this text teaches us. And I've experienced that in my own life. When my daughter was born, many of you know the story, she was born with with her birth defect that required required seven surgeries in six years, and at three months of age when they did her first surgery, my wife, who was at the time working at UT Southwestern as a diabetes educator, when she had Sarah, she was working contract, which means she wasn't guaranteed any hours right? If we need you, you can come in. If we don't need you, sorry, we ain't got nothing for you. And so she was, guaranteed, she was told whenever she went on maternity leave that there would be work there for her when she got back. But when she came back, they were like, I'm sorry, things have kind of dried up. We've allocated resources elsewhere. We don't have anything for you. And so here we are with medical bills from um, not only the delivery, but also her surgery and things were beginning to mount in our lives. And so we shared that as a prayer request with a small group that we were in. And we asked them to pray for us. And about a week later, I had one of the men in that small group came to me and said, hey, listen, can we do a fundraiser for you and your family? And I was so humbled by that. I was so humbled. And I said, listen, I, I, I would be, we would be blessed if you would. 
And so they began to organize and plan. And they, they, caught, they got this guy who's like this amazing cook to barbecue a bunch of chicken one night. And, and so he, he put all the sides and fixings in little styrofoam boxes and, you know, little Chinese takeout trays and little uh, bagged utensils and silverware. And they had all this uh, drinks and everything. And they, they, as people left church, they began to say, hey, hey, we're doing this fundraiser in this room over here. Stop by. And they told them what it was for. And people began to write checks, not only for the food, but also for our medical expenses. At the end of the day, whenever they came to announce the total they had collected and put a check in our hands. It was for over $8,000. And I just began to weep because here were some people who, began to, who, were planning, who planned for what they prayed for. They prayed and God turned their heart. They said, maybe we can be a part of the answer to that prayer. That's exactly what's going on with Naomi here. Do, do, do you have that kind of category in your mind? Students, do you have that kind of category in your mind in the lives of your friends when they come to you and talk about how they're struggling? Do you, do you, do you say, yes, I'm gonna intercede, I'm gonna pray for you, but then you initiate with them? Do you plan for what you pray for? Now listen. <clears throat> Second thing. While Naomi's intentions were absolutely noble, her execution is questionable at best questionable at best, right? When you read in the text, the section of scripture, like we said, we wouldn't call it prescriptive. In other words, it's not telling us what should happen. It's telling us what did happen. But I love this chapter because one of the things that it does for us is it takes into account that God's providence is, is elastic enough to where it can stretch and take in even our questionable actions, even our questionable plans, even our questionable strategies, even our questionable deeds. Because one of the things it teaches us is that God provid- is providential even when we are questionable. Aren't you glad about that? Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I look back and I go, that was seriously questionable. <laughs> and yet God was providential in the midst of it. Listen, there are times when we see something and we might think we know what God might be up to and we begin to make a plan to address it and sometimes our plans are questionable, problematic, or even borderline sinful. Now listen, I've, I've looked at the language in the Hebrew. I've read the commentators, studied the context, and I, 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 I don't really have any deep insight to stand up here and say, this is not really what it sounds like it is. Right? Well, Naomi's intentions were, were noble. Her counsel was very questionable. And here's her plan. Right? Let's, let me break it down for you. Her plan involved two phases. One, preparation. The second, presentation. Right? So Ruth was to prepare herself. Right? She'd been working out in the fields all day. Got some pit stains. Her hair is all up in a bun. Right? Come, get washed up. Right? Get a little BO. Put on some perfume. Anoint yourself. And then go, that was preparation, right? And then go down and present yourself at the most opportune time when the man has finished a meal at the threshing floor. He's eaten and drunk. His heart is merry. He's lied down by the heap of grain and he's, he's there asleep and you go uncover his feet and lay down there and when he wakes up, ask him what he should do, right? That's, that's the plan that she comes up with. Now listen, if your daughter is interested in a young man, I hope your counsel would not be, like, I just don't know how to get his attention, right? I hope your counsel would not be, listen, when he goes camping, follow him out to the woods, and after he has a couple of beers, and is laying down in his tent, alongside the campfire, sleeping under the stars, go into the tent, unzip the tent, crawl into his sleeping bag, and whenever he wakes up, say, what do you want me to do? (laughs) 
Like, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's why I cringe just a little bit every time I read this passage of scripture. Now the commentators, they run the spectrum, right, from this is a terrible idea to this is like she trusted in the sovereignty of God that Boaz's character would withstand the test and temptation, so she took a risk. Now listen, at best, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And here's why. Here's why. First, on one hand, Naomi was throwing her lot in with the providence of God because Ruth approaching Boaz at all was risky. In that culture, in that day, and in that time. Consider this, she was a young woman approaching an older, more distinguished man. She was a gleaner, not even a hired servant in his household, but a gleaner approaching the owner of the field. She was a poor woman approaching a man of wealth and stature and she was a Moabite foreigner approaching an Israelite. To do that at all was risky and required them casting their lot with the providence of God, trusting that he was going to direct the affairs. So it was risky. Ruth could have been humiliated at best because Boaz could have awakened, right, and and said, listen, uh, uh, thanks but no thanks, or could have awakened and said, listen, what, who do you think that I am? What do you take me for? Why are you coming to me in these kinds of conditions, in this kind of setting, in this particular situation? He could have awakened and said, don't sleep next to me and ruin my reputation. Go sleep next to those guys. So she could have been humiliated and rejected at best. She could have been harmed at worst. And here's why. Because what you, most, most, most modern Americans don't understand about the threshing floor in those days was that it was a, a, a place of, of a lot of times really depraved and dangerous activity. Because think about what you've got. At the end of the harvest, you've got these blue-collar workers who've been out in the field reaping grain for weeks on end, and then they bring it to the threshing floor. The threshing floor was usually a public place, and you usually was elevated up on a hill to, to, to take advantage of the breezes that blew up high. Because they would go to the threshing floor and take the grain, and they would take a winnowing fork, and they would take the grain, they would toss it up into the air. As they tossed the grain up, uh, the stalks of grain up into the air, the wind would blow through and it would blow the chaff away out into the fields and the heavier, denser grain would fall to the floor and settle there and they would collect it up and then they would store it or sell it. So at the end of the harvest, these, these guys who've been working the fields the whole time, they're about to get a payday, right? They're about to get some money in their pockets at the, and they've just had a big feast and celebrated this great harvest. At the end of a season of great famine, can you imagine the elation in their hearts as they look at all that God has provided, as they celebrate, as they, give, as they, as they rejoice, as they kind of party a little bit? That's what's going on at the threshing floor. And so oftentimes in those days, prostitutes would make their way to the threshing floor because they wanted to get a cut of the profits before those men went back into town. So they would come to the threshing floor to offer themselves up to the men who were there for a good time that evening in order to be compensated. In fact, Hosea tells us that one of the, you know, because Israel found God to be useful for some things, useless in others. Military advantage, yes, God. Agricultural success, not really, because here's what the gods of the other nations, here's how the, uh, the peoples of the other nations saw agricultural success. They saw that the gods were the ones who seeded the earth and provided fertility to the ground. And so what they would do is they would gather in places up on high hills so the gods could see, and then they would mimic what they wanted the gods to do in heaven on earth. And so they would engage in cultural, in, 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 in kind of cultic prostitution, and, and, and sexual intercourse there on the high hills to, to motivate the gods in the heavens to do the same so that the seed would rain down on the earth and fertilize the ground and they would produce abundant crops. 
And so they had these temple prostitutes and these cultic prostitutes who would show up in these places seeking to make a dollar off of the men. And this is where Naomi is sending Ruth. Into that environment, into that context, in secrecy, right? Don't make yourself known till he's asleep. That is, at best, questionable, right? Ter- a terrible idea. Let's just go ahead and be honest. Terrible idea. Now, while, so, so listen, listen to me. While it's true that many other plans of a man, not all of them are good. <laughs> Do you know that? Not all of them are good. See, I don't know about you, but in my life, there have been times where I've done something that I thought at the time may have been a good idea. Maybe based on counsel that I received or, or, or I, I, ideas that came to me or that I had. So I did something thought to be a good idea, but looking back on it, I, I came to, to, to ask myself the question, was that, really, was that really a good idea? And, and because we're Americans and very pragmatic, we go, well, look, it all worked out, so it was a good idea. But here's what we need to learn to say. Listen, what you and I need to learn to see and say is this. So when we look back on our past and we, and we try and process through some decisions maybe that we've made previously, we need to learn to see and say this, is that, you know what? There may be some things in my life that have been very questionable and borderline sinful or things that were actually sinful. There were bad ideas. And even though they may have worked out, God, because God is gracious and redemptive and he, he's pulled me out of some mess that I got myself into Looking back, I can say this, that that was bad, but God was good. This is not meant to be a text of scripture that allows us to look back and go, you know, just kind of baptize all of our bad ideas and say, you know what, you should do it too. Look how it worked out for me. But be able to have the self-awareness and honesty to look back and say, that was bad, but God was good. And the only reason I'm here today is because he is gracious. See, in all of your planning, in all of our planning, see, part of the question is this, is, is, is are you seeking not only Christian counsel, but wise Christian counsel? Because this is not wise counsel. On one hand, you may say, well, Naomi was encouraging Ruth to make herself available to Boaz for marriage, to say, listen, if you, if you want to move this direction, I'm, I'm ready to go. The way that she goes about doing it it is, is, puts Ruth at great harm, with great risk. And so at times we need to look and go, you know what, my, my, plan, my planning in my finances, my planning in my parenting, my planning in my marriage, one, is there any planning in those areas of your life? But two, if there is planning in those areas of your life, some of you may need to go say, ask this question, am I seeking counsel? Am I seeking not only Christian counsel, am I seeking wise Christian counsel for how I parent my kids, for how I manage my finances, for how I love my spouse, for how I engage the world and my neighbors and those who are around me? Because, yes, God is providential even when you are questionable, but you know what God wants you to do? He wants you to flourish in the fullness of joy and not have to be rescued from messes that we continue to create because we do things that are questionable over and over and over and over and over again. Are you with me? God is providential even when we are questionable. So, what does Ruth do? Ruth... (laughs) 
Texas does everything that her mother-in-law commanded her. So she washes, she puts on her dress, no more pit stains, hair's down. She goes to the threshing floor with her cloak. She waits until he falls asleep, goes lie down at the end of his feet. He's there to protect his investment, protect his grain from thieves. And so she takes advantage of the opportunity and goes, and whenever he wakes up, here's the one place that she departs from her, her mother-in-law's counsel. When, she, when he wakes up, listen, she doesn't say, what do you want me to do? She says, here's what I want you to do. And what does she ask, what does she say to him when she identifies herself? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me. Some of your translations say garment over me for you are a redeemer. Now a little background on that before we kind of press some of this a little bit further to understand what she's asking for. In Jewish custom, in the law, there was, she's basically her request is standing against the backdrop of two customs in the Jewish law. First one is that of the kinsman redeemer, and the second one is that of leveret marriage. The kinsman redeemer you can find in the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. There's a couple of texts there that kind of expound on what the kinsman's redeemer's responsibility was. And they largely center around the redemption of property and the redemption of people in the Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament law, property was to be redeemed and people were to be redeemed. Listen to Leviticus chapter 25 as God gives his law to his people in a way that is so beautiful and gracious. Listen to what he says in 25, 23 and following. He says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. In other words, there is no, there, there is no like, like, once sold, always sold kind of a mentality in Israel. It shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, God says. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. You see, God had designed a system in ancient Israel that kept from there being a hoarding of wealth at the top 1% of all the people, but made sure there was equitable, equitable distribution amongst all the peoples who belonged to him. And so the property was never to be sold in perpetuity, but always had the potential to be redeemed. And if it could not be redeemed, then it was to be released in the year of Jubilee. And so part of what the kinsman's redeemer responsibility is what was, was to redeem the land that their clansmen had sold. Right, because the land and the clan went together. And here's why, right, you may be thinking, like my little piece of property, my little parcel size postage stamp lot in Wood Creek or Williamsburg or Chamberlain Crossing doesn't mean that lot to me. Some of you are like, man, my 12 acres out in, 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 in poetry or, or in Union Valley or, or off in South Rockwell, that means a lot to me. Right, but I want you to tell you something, it meant more to them. And here's a part of why, because they had a theological perspective of their land that God had given it to them and allotted to them this land. So it should not pass from the clan, but remain in it. That's why it was so important. And so a redeemer could redeem property, but could also redeem people. Because sometimes 
Sometimes people had reached a place of destitution and poverty in their lives, and so they had to sell themselves as indentured servants to another person. And so the, the text goes on in Leviticus 25 to tell us that the Redeemer's responsibility was at times to redeem people out of slavery, out of servitude in the house of another. So that's one of the customs in Israel that she's drawing on. She says, Boaz, you're one of our redeemers. You're one who stands in the line of the clan of Elimelech. So because you have that, that privilege, I'm asking you to exercise it, to redeem. But there's a second custom that stands in the backdrop of, stands in the backdrop of a request, and that's of leveret marriage. Now, leveret is a term that means brother or like in-law, right? And in Deuteronomy 25, there's a text that, that reads this way. It says that <clears throat> if brothers dwell together, in Deuteronomy 25 verse five, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That's a little different for most of you. And me. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Because one of the greatest shames in the ancient world was to lose your legacy and not be remembered in perpetuity by your family and your lineage and your line. That it would be snuffed out. And in fact, if the brother refuses to fulfill his responsibility, the widow actually had legal recourse to go to the elders. And the elders would go to the man and say, why are you refusing? And if he continues to refuse, then she gets to spit in his face, <laughs> right? That's interesting. <laughs> the Bible has all kinds of good stuff in it, right? <laughs> so this, these, these, these images of kinsman redeemer and leveret mayor stand in the backdrop of Ruth's request. And she says, would you spread your wings over me. Now that language in 3.9 in her request is the exact same language in back in 2.12 when Boaz says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. May you be blessed by the Lord. Why? May he repay you in full with a reward because you've sought refuge where? Under his wings. So what Ruth is saying is I've got a particular way in which I believe God is going to shelter me under, your, under his wings and it's gonna be under yours. Now, she's not getting down on her knee and pulling out a ring and saying, will you marry me? Right? She's not pulling a Carlos Correa on national TV after he wins the World Series. Right? But what she's doing is saying, I'm, I, my, my days of mourning are over and I'm ready to move forward in marriage if you're willing to redeem. If you're willing to move forward as well. And so the question is, how does Boaz respond? How does Boaz respond? See, in our culture, in our culture, he would say, well, you know what, let's give this thing a little test drive on the threshing floor and we'll see how this goes. And if it goes well, then... <laughs> then we can talk about moving forward, right? That's how it would happen in our day. It's like a mega church pastor across town, won't mention his name, several years ago, brought a car out on stage and said, hey, listen, dating's kind of like test driving cars, right? You just gotta keep test driving them until you find one that fits you right. And while I agree in theory, I would choose a better image probably to communicate that because I tell you what, if anybody wants to test drive with my little girl, as a, as, a, as a dad of a daughter, listen, some unsanctified parts of my soul will probably come out um, very quickly, right? 
But that's how it would go in our day. But listen, Boaz's character shines brilliantly in this moment. But the question is why? And here's the answer, because he's been, this character has been cultivated over the course of time in his life. And so one of the things this text teaches us is this, is that we are to cultivate character that shines over the course of time. That's the only way you cultivate character that shines. In the midst of tests, is over time. Listen, character is not cultivated in a microwave, but in a crock pot. Do you know that? Or on a smoker, depending on, right, if you're in the kitchen or in the backyard. Right, let me, let me just go break it down for you. Like you put a brisket in a microwave and set that thing for an hour and 15 minutes and just let it nuke right there. I think it's gonna come out rubbery and nasty and nobody's, it's not gonna be edible. Nobody's gonna wanna eat it, right? Because you tried to expedite something that's supposed to take place over the course of time. But you put that thing on, you marinate that thing, you soak it in all kinds of whatever special gris-gris you've got there in your kitchen, maybe family recipe. And you put that thing on the smoker, you put it in a crock pot and over the course of eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 16 hours, all those flavors and the smoke just kind of soak into the meat and they tenderize it and they make it moist and they make it juicy and they make it tasty it's not rubbery it's tasty right because it's the flavor soaks in over the course of time you don't expedite that in the microwave and the same thing is true with character and I want you to know the character that shines right here in Boaz's life it was cultivated in a pressure cooker it was cultivated in heat and pressure you go, well, how do you know that? In Ruth chapter one, verse one, I wanna remind you of something, that the story starts, now there was, in the days of the judges, there was what? A famine in the land. The same famine that Elimelech and Naomi fled from to Moab, Boaz lived through in Bethlehem. Still has his land, still has his workers, still has his servants. He didn't jump ship and leave town. He lived through that. And in those days, you can imagine the loneliness that he experienced. You can imagine the hunger that he experienced as he saw other people around him deeming God to be useless in some ways and turning their backs on him and rebelling and running. And yet Boaz remains, it would seem he remains faithful. He learns a lesson through that that whenever, whenever you, you, you turn your back on God's ways and think that what you think is better than what God says, then God at times will squeeze you. And as he squeezes you or those around you or the environment in which you're in, it begins to put pressure and it begins to cultivate character and presses it down. The flavor of that character begins to soak through every facet of your life. And so Boaz's character shines so brilliantly here because that character was cultivated over time and under pressure and in heat. Look at how he responds. It's, it's beautiful how he responds. Imagine being awakened in the middle of the night. As your feet are cold, right? Because somebody's uncovered them. <laughs> Imagine being awakened in the middle of the night and there's this lady laying down on your feet Best we could tell, Boaz has never been married, probably never been with a woman, and she's lying there at your feet, smells good, right? Her hair's washed, 
No more pit stains. Got on a nice dress. Right? She's there at his feet. And, and, and it's beautiful how he responds. Listen, to, listen. I, I just saw eight things or seven things that just kind of popped out to me as I read this text this week. First of all, he blesses her. Maybe he blessed my daughter. And why does he bless her? Not because she, he finds her cute. Not because he thinks she's attractive. And I, man, we could chase that rabbit for a long time. But here, listen, not because, because he affirms her character. This last kindness that you have done is better than the former. In other words, you haven't chased after the young men, whether they were rich or poor. You didn't marry for attraction. You didn't marry for status. You didn't marry for physicality, but you're you're pursuing me out of loyalty to your mother-in-law, Naomi, to be a kinsman redeemer. He affirms her character. He says, you're a worthy woman. You know where that verb, that word shows up again in the Bible? It's in Proverbs 31. A woman of noble character. And I find it so interesting that even before Proverbs was written, the epitome of a woman of noble character was not an Israelite woman, but a Moabite foreigner who converted to faith in Yahweh. He affirms her character. He commits himself to her. I will do all that you ask. I will do everything that you've asked of me. But he, listen, listen to this. This is good, all right? He commits to do everything above board and according to the law. Because listen to what he says. I will do everything that you ask, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. In other words, there's somebody who stands closer in line to redeem you and Ruth and Naomi's land and Elimelech's land. And I've got to give him the opportunity. Right? And then if he, if he refuses, the Lord lives, then I will redeem you. Fifth, he honors and respects her. He doesn't take advantage of her. He protects her purity. He says, lie down there, stay at my feet, right? Don't come up here and snuggle. Don't come up here and cuddle, but stay right down there, right? Far away where nothing can be, nothing's gonna go on here on the threshing floor. He protects her purity. He protects her reputation. They wake up before one can recognize another, before the sun has come up. And he says, let it not be known a woman's come to the threshing floor. He protects her reputation and he provides for Ruth and for Naomi. He says, bring out the garment. Let me fill it with barley and bring it back to your mother-in-law. Look at that, look at that character that shines so brilliantly in that test. And here's what happens is his test that he experiences becomes a testimony of his character and of God's faithfulness to preserve him in the midst of it as he blesses her and affirms her character, as he provides for and protects her. His, his, listen, his response shines so brilliantly in a day and age in which women are not honored and protected, but they're objectified and used. Now, some of you might be asking the question, and I know I'm going over, but we're gonna keep going. Uh, Some of you might be asking this question. Like, are you, are you sure nothing happened? Like, really, nothing happened there at the threshing floor? Like, when I used to do single adult ministry and student ministry, here's a question that I got so often from single adults and high school students was this, is how far is too far? Where's the line? Like, are you sure they didn't cross some line there on the threshing floor that night as they're laying there and, you know, snuggle up under a, a blanket together, covered up? You sure they didn't cross some kind of line? Well, the text doesn't give us any indication that they did, but I want you to consider something. If you're asking that question, where's the line? Then I want you to examine your motives. And here's why, because we're so concerned with how far can we go, but listen, the, Bi- the question the Bible asks and answers is not how far can you go, but when can you go there? 
That's the question the Bible asks and answers. Not where is the line, but when is the time? And one of the repeated refrains in the book of Song, uh, the Song of Solomon is this, is do not awaken love before it's time. Do not awaken love before it's time. And listen, we live in a day and a culture in which if this had, story had played out in our day and time, it may have, it, 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 particularly in our culture, it could play out very, very differently because of the cultural norms that we're breathing in and breathing out. See, the Bible commands us to flee from sexual immorality. And that word flee literally means this. Put as much distance between yourself and compromising people, places, and positions as possible. That's what it means. Right? When, when you see a compromising person, place, or position, you run as far as you can and as fast as you can in the other direction and put as much distance between yourself and that as you possibly can. Right? There's no, there's no indication that Boaz and Ruth had any kind of physical contact in that capacity there at the threshing floor that night. But he protects her, he provides for her because he had learned that whenever you get, when, by being squeezed, that God's ways, are, God, what God says is better than what I think. And listen, church, listen, students, if you're, God's ways are better than what you think and better than the cultural norms in which you live with regards to your sexuality. Because if there's any aspect of life in which our current cultural context has said God is useless in, it's in the area of your sexuality, of how you use your body. Our current culture has rejected God's counsel in relationship to that area of life. But Boaz knew, here's what Boaz knew. He knew that God's, what God says is better than what he thought or what anybody else thought. And so he submitted to God's counsel. And here's God's counsel. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna land the plane, I promise. But here, listen, here's God's counsel. Is that covenant comes before consummation, not the other way around. That's the answer to when is the time. That's the answer to when can we go there. That covenant comes before consummation. Look, in Genesis chapter two, when the Bible says, after the creation of the man and woman, it says, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to notice the order there. The order does not say the two shall become one flesh and then they're to leave the household and then they're to cleave and hold fast to each other. It says no commitment comes before consummation. Covenant comes before consummation. That's God's parameters for it. And listen, any time consummation precedes covenant, I want you to know that the result oftentimes is collateral damage. Collateral damage that you may not have intended, that they may not have intended, but it happens. And you end up feeling used, you end up feeling manipulated, you end up feeling abused, you end up feeling like no one cares for you, it leaves a gaping void in your life that you feel like you have to go fill, and so what do you do? You continue to move to consummation and consummation and consummation on down the line with multiple partners because you're trying to fill that void. Now, we, we could keep going. Some of you are very uncomfortable right now. But here's what I, here's what I 
want to leave you with is this. Will you trust that what God says is better than what this culture thinks? Now I told you we would get to Jesus and here it is. Do you see how Boaz, this is beautiful. You see how Boaz cares for Ruth? Because if, if you read carefully, here's what you would see. Boaz is not a brother to Malon. He's not Elimelech's son. Do you know that? He happens to be far, you know, somewhere removed in the clan, but he is not by law legally required to fulfill the duty of a brother to her. He can redeem the land as one who's in the clan, but he's not required to fulfill the law of leveret marriage with Ruth because he does, he's, he's not bound by the letter of the law, but here's what he's willing to do. He's willing to, in, to fulfill the intent of it. He's willing to say, sign me up to fulfill the intent of the law because he doesn't move toward Ruth out of duty, but out of grace. And Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time. I wish that man was still alive. He'd be really old. <laughs> I'd love to have dinner with him. This is what he said. He said, you know what? We have a glorious Boaz. And his name is Jesus. One who has blessed us. One who has moved to us, not out of duty, but out of Grace. One who has said, let me shelter you under my wings and protect you and provide for you if you would but come to me in faith. Have you done so? If you would, he stands ready to receive you. Even if you look back and say, you know what? <laughs> that was bad. But God, you were good. Would you shelter me today? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come with hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for your grace in our lives. As we see on the pages of scripture, the beauty of your gospel played out across all the pages of the Bible and we see our glorious Boaz, your son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and saved us and served us at great cost to himself who was willing to go beyond the letter of the law, but who fulfilled all the law for us so that he might bless us with all of the heavenly riches that you possess. And Father, as we seek refuge and shelter under his wings, God, may we, may we be the kind of people who have enough self-awareness to look back and say, that was bad, but God was good. You were good in our lives. And so that we would not give questionable counsel to others based on just how things worked out in our lives, but we would always come back to scripture and measure it there. And be able to say, that, that was sinful. But you were so gracious. And Father, may you cultivate our character through the pressure cookers of life so that we are able to pass tests in a moment's notice. And God, may you compel us to be the kind of people who initiate, even at times in, in, maybe even times we get out over our skis a little bit, but we would initiate 
even as we intercede. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.